It would certainly be in order to echo the sentiments that Brother Gary shared earlier as we expressed the thanksgiving that's no doubt in each of our hearts for the ability that's ours today, the privilege of assembling in the name of the God of heaven with a desire to worship Him only in that which is in truth and spirit, John 4, 24. And certainly as we are assembled and think about those who are sick or otherwise and unable to be with us, our mind rushes to them in hope and in prayer that they soon shall be able to be with us. As blessed as you and I are today to be here, we can imagine that the goodness of heaven will only so far exceed what you and I are able to enjoy in this life. Today, as we continue a series of studies that we began last Lord's Day morning, it was one in which we addressed the matter and the subject of fellowship. And as we did that, we in fact looked at a few of the topics on this opening slide. We learned about the beautiful community of believers we in fact came to appreciate that we enjoy a magnificent fellowship with God. There are times when as you and I give thought to just how great it is to fellowship the Creator of all things, to fellowship the grandeur and glory of the greatness of God that we appreciate from the Word of God. But in addition to that, we also enjoy a fellowship with one another as brothers and as sisters in Christ. And that fellowship is truly set forth in 1 John 1 verses 3 through 6. And as we discussed all of that, we learned the sad occasion when there are sometimes those that choose to so conduct themselves in a way that they jeopardize and in fact sever that fellowship. They choose not to walk in harmony with the commandments of God. As we closed that lesson and saw the tra tragic reality of that, it did bring us to an understanding that God has much to say on that subject. And it brings us to the lesson this morning. As you might have noted in the bulletin, as well as that slide prior to this one. The subject of fellowship, in fact, also touches the issue in the matter of discipline, doesn't it? And in fact, that's the title of the lesson today. As we look at that issue as it's set forth in the New Testament, it brings us first to these realizations. The matter of discipline, as God teaches it to each of us in the Word of God, is a rather far-reaching issue, and these are a few of the highlighted matters. We initially learned that discipline is a very important issue to God. Our God is, of course, a God who never does things by way of confusion. He is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. But rather, He has a desire that things always be done decently and in order in all matters in regard to the church, 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 40. In regard to that attribute of God, we thus appreciate so powerfully that God has delegated, and He has said much about discipline as it takes place in the world. For instance, in the home, we well know that God desires, in fact, it is His commandment, that there be discipline so that children are reared in a way that they know and appreciate that there is a wrong and that there is right. And as they appreciate and learn that which is wrong, and hopefully learn that in a way that they shall not do so again, it brings us to the realization of passages such as these. In Proverbs 13, 24, we learn there that he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. And so a loving set of parents, even though it may not be pleasant, and certainly it isn't, it's certainly something, though, that needs to be done for the well-being of the child. And so in love, the child is disciplined. We learn later, in a little bit later in the book of Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
That attribute of training has within it the concept and the thought of discipline when appropriate. We also learn that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it from him. Children make mistakes, and God, through passages like those as well as others, has ordained that the parents are at times to employ the rod if necessary. The belt on occasion is what I receive more often than not, but it is what one uses to help instill wisdom in the heart of a child. Wisdom, you see, that comes in part by discipline. But not only in the attribute of the home, we also find Children are commanded in Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Thus, they need to learn obedience. One of the grandest ways they learn it is in the confines of the home. We also learn that God has ordained in the attribute of civil government the issue of discipline. The civil government from, first from Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 has the power to put to death those that are lawbreakers and those that in fact engage in activity that is deemed inappropriate for society. We thus learn that discipline is important both in the home as well as of course in the government at large. All of that brings us to the realization that also within the church discipline is an important matter. Just as surely as it's highlighted in these other ways, the New Testament also speaks about discipline as it occurs in the confines of the body of Christ. It takes a variety of forms depending on the circumstances and the situations of what takes place. For example, I've listed in Acts 18 verses 24 and following, we learn on that occasion that here was a gentleman namely Apollos who was teaching that which was incorrect in his knowledge. Namely, he was teaching only the baptism of John the Baptist. It was Aquila and Priscilla who took him aside and who exerted a matter of discipline, teaching him more correctly the things of the Christ. In addition to that, we might well notice in Galatians 2 verses 11 and following that on that occasion, discipline took a slightly different form. This time it was Peter who was in error. When certain from James came, Peter distanced himself and would not eat with the Gentiles. And Paul said, I rebuked him to the face, for he was to be blamed. Here was a circumstance when immediately Paul exerted a matter of discipline even toward Peter, helping him to understand the error of his way and also helping him appreciate that he was leading others astray as well. Maybe one final example on that slide from Romans 16, 17. As the book of Romans draws to its conclusion, Paul issued these statements. He said that we, in fact, are to take careful note of those who teach and walk in a way that's contrary to the doctrine that had been received. And not only are they to be marked, but they are to be avoided. And on those instances, we learn that discipline took a variety of forms depending on the nature of that situation. Of course, one final one, though I suppose ought to be mentioned. When an individual who chose to walk disorderly and who chooses to walk in a way apart from the teaching of the Lord does not repent, then we notice in the reading that Cale read for us earlier that the command was given was this one. Withdraw yourselves from everyone that walketh disorderly. 
And thus here was the church making an open decision to withdraw from one, from what formerly had been a faithful brother or sister in Christ, but to withdraw from that one that now did not walk in a way that was proper and that would not repent of that. And in so doing, we notice that word withdrawal was used by the inspired apostle. Because of the usage of that word, it might be fair to see where it leads us. What is involved when a church recognizes the need and pursues the course of action withdrawing from one who has behaved and acted in that kind of way and will not repent? For those reasons, might we notice what's the purpose of discipline? Maybe in the world in which we live, there could be many questions raised. Does a church engage in discipline just to get revenge on what one person has done? Or maybe to show that they are in fact the ones who are the superior ones. Would those be acceptable reasons to engage in discipline? Well, the clear answer from the Scriptures is no. When discipline in any of these forms is experienced... The purpose is to save the soul of the one, to save the soul of that one who has erred. That's the reason for the discipline. It's never to be done in an attribute of pride or haughtiness or as if one lifts oneself up unduly above another, but rather for love and interest and concern for that one who has walked disorderly. Look at these verses with me in Philippians 2 verse number 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Paul on that occasion said nothing. Not even the matter of discipline ought to be carried out in a way that is done in strife or in a, in a vainglorious attribute of a trying to make oneself look good. Furthermore, we notice in Romans twelve nineteen that vengeance is what belongs to God and no one else. With those thoughts in mind, isn't it amazing? that we notice that there is a critical concern for the well-being of the one who has made the choices that he or she has made. I listed a few passages, perhaps in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. That one sets the tone for all of them that will follow. When Paul addressed the church in Corinth with regard to this one who was living the way that he was, and we'll look more carefully at that whole situation a bit later, we find that Paul said to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Discipline by itself is not a pleasant thing, but yet it's something that's for the betterment and well-being of the one. That this one might come to appreciate the course of action that he or she has pursued and that hopefully repentance will follow and that they will proceed to walk in the way again that would enjoy a fellowship with God and a fellowship with one another. In addition to that passage in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 14, the commandment on that occasion, again by Paul, was this, that they were in fact to carefully note that man that would not walk according to the commandment that was revealed and to have no company with him. Interesting, isn't it? to note the one who would not walk following the commandments and traditions delivered by the holy apostles, and not only to note him, but have no company with him. The whole purpose was that he might be saved eventually, realizing the error of his way, coming to understand the greatness of what he had lost, and the fact that individuals faithful in Christ had so deemed his conduct 
that he would not be able to be welcomed in fellowship in that way. Another passage in Matthew 18, 15. We remember that Jesus even had much to say about the matter of how one deals with issues like this. And again, as we look at that passage a bit later, we'll make note of how direct and how specific our, our Savior was on that occasion. In all the instances that we have considered, we have noted that discipline, you see, is mentioned frequently. And it's something that was a direct commandment by God through Paul to the churches of that day. In light of all of that, one of the bottom statements of that slide then would be this one, that the church must remain pure. Another one of the reasons for the matter of discipline is so that the church can maintain the purity and integrity with which the Lord invested it. That it couldn't be in the language of Ephesians 5.27 without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In fact, blemishless in all of its regards. When the world outside sees a congregation tolerating error, just like the church in Corinth did in 1 Corinthians 5, it in fact makes the church unappealing to the world and in fact says that the church itself not only is tolerant of it but is unwilling to discipline anything with regard to it. All of that points us to ask more carefully then about discipline. Should it then not be true that just like a child who acts disobediently to his or her parents ought to expect to be disciplined, so too a Christian who walks disorderly with respect to the Holy Scripture should expect to be disciplined. What do those expectations lead to? What's the reality that rests behind them? Perhaps these verses will lead us in that direction. That discipline, as we have discussed it earlier, is based upon passages, one of which we mentioned a moment ago from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse number 6. I would invite you to revisit that verse with me as we look at what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church so many years ago. Paul wrote, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So on this occasion, this church in Thessalonica was told by Paul by direct commandment, when there is a one who refuses to walk following the commandment that has been delivered, one who chooses to walk in a way that is here described as disorderly. We might notice that that word disorderly means to live irresponsibly by the standard of the Scriptures, to so conduct himself or herself in a way that is condemned in the Word of God. That person, Paul said, it is to withdraw yourself from that one. That verb withdraw means to separate to in fact make it clear that this state of affairs is not going to be tolerated and that one is not to enjoy the fellowship one had before in light of the situations that have been chosen in terms of life. You know, it is furthermore beyond that. What are some things that might constitute walking disorderly? First of all, we might notice a few listings given in the sacred scriptures. There are those instances of immoral living. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 gives us a rather extensive list of that one. I would invite you to read with me as we look at one of the verses found in that chapter. 
1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, when in fact Paul makes discussion of this issue of withdrawing fellowship, there was one guilty of fornication. But when we arrive at verses 10 and 11, this is the statement the inspired apostle makes. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. So though Paul began that discussion by making reference to one guilty of fornication, we notice his extension of it included many other things. One living as a covetous man, one living as an extortioner, one guilty of idolatry. All of those things point us to the immoral living as defined in the Scriptures by itself would constitute grounds for a congregation to proceed to withdraw from one of its members who had begun to live in that way. Other verses. In Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, we are commanded to mortify various activities and things in this life. And that word mortify means to put to death. It has no part in the life of one dedicated to God. Among the things listed there are various and sundry elements of fleshly existence, be they sexual sin, be they sins of other kind of character like idolatry and covetousness. Paul says mortify, that is, put that to death. And so if one becomes guilty of that and chooses to live in that way as loving brothers and sisters in Christ... A church ought to desire to bring that person back, but if he or she won't repent, it may ultimately require withdrawal of fellowship before they ultimately would realize the sad and despicable state of where they are. Another passage is Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, where Paul's famous listing of the works of the flesh is given. And on that occasion, Paul, did he not say that those guilty of these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So if a person's guilty of one or more of them, and if they have been approached and urged and admonished, but they won't repent, then a church would need, hopefully, as the final resort, to withdraw fellowship and hope that that person would come to his or her senses that they'd finally wake up and understand that they are bound for hell in their current state, in their current life. Withdrawal of fellowship, it would seem, is the last resort that the church might utilize in the hopes of reaching someone who to this point has been unrepentant, who has not shown an element of penitence with regard to activities that are sinful. It is for that reason that we can notice several others that would also fall under a heading of being susceptible of withdrawing a fellowship. First of all, there would be, what about those that go beyond the doctrine of Christ? That is to say, they take the liberty to make laws where God hasn't made any. And they take the liberty of asserting and saying and speaking for God. What about those who teach false doctrine? And those who, in fact, lead individuals astray with a false worship and a false plan of salvation? Certainly, upon being admonished and attempt to correct them, if they won't repent, the church could maintain fellowship with false teachers in that regard or with those who endorse that kind of teaching. Another example would be a divisive person. 
In Titus 3, verse 10, Paul there wrote that a factious man, that is a divisive person, after the first and second admonitions reject, you approach the person. You attempt to admonish and correct and rebuke and teach, and then maybe a second time even to do so. But if that person will not repent, then you mustn't tolerate this factiousness. You must reject that one. Isn't it interesting then that as one gives thought to what the Scriptures teach about withdrawing a fellowship, that it goes so far as to assert that it's a commanded thing and it's to be done in those circumstances when that person has not responded any other way. It certainly seems that in all of these instances, that critical matter that makes the withdrawing a fellowship become a reality is that final statement on that slide. If an individual is open to teaching and open to repentance, and open to changing his or her life and conduct. And they can be reached, and their heart is touched, and they exhibit a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Then they have been saved in terms of their soul being directed again on the pathway of rightness. This matter of withdrawing fellowship is only reserved for those who, even upon admonition, and even those who have been unreceptive to it, will not repent. They have shown a callousness of heart, an unwillingness to receive the truth, and have shown that they are not intending to walk orderly, but rather are choosing to walk disorderly. When that state of events and that scene of affairs has reached that point, what would be those steps then that would be involved? How should a church go about taking those steps, necessary steps that would involve the withdrawing of fellowship. Does the Bible say, does it tell us what ought to be done, how it's to be done, and the things that would follow from it? Here are some thoughts that seemingly directly come before us. First of all, as we would have noted on so many occasions, prayer would be a very important part of it. For the church as a whole, for individuals thereof, as they give thought to the carrying out of this matter of withdrawing fellowship. It's still the case, isn't it, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And certainly a congregation, the elders of that congregation, certainly would involve much time and serious contemplation and prayer over the subject. But isn't it true that beyond that we notice in 1 John 5, 16 that when there is a sin not unto death, that the congregation is to pray unto God for that, asking for that, and God will answer that prayer. Certainly there we have explicit evidence that prayer should be a critical element in the carrying out of the matter of disfellowship. Beyond that issue of prayer, as we've noted earlier, there must be first that opportunity that desire to teach. Hopefully the person will repent. Hopefully the person will hear what the Scriptures teach. Hopefully the individual with a tender heart will finally soften and realize the error of the way. There needs to be instruction. Teaching so that they know clearly where they stand, so that they understand the decision that they have made and where they are leading and what the consequences shall be. These verses tell us this in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. 
Thus, there should be a broken heart on the part of the faithful when one has chosen to walk disorderly. And they should strive to reach, to teach, to encourage. We notice beyond that, there is this verse in James 5, verses 19 and 20. The last two verses of the book of James. It is on that occasion that James wrote, that if any of you do err from the truth, and one will convert him, that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Oh, how one would yearn and hope that the instruction would be received, that the person would repent, that change of heart would take place, that change of life would follow. However, there does come another step. Suppose it doesn't. There needs to be admonition to where again a clear knowledge is understood. Book, chapter, and verse is given so that if contrary activities take place, again, the individual knows that he or she has violated the will of God and their course of action is condemned by the Holy Word of God. That admonition is commanded of us in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 when Paul there commanded us that we admonish and as our elders take the lead in that admonition, we each too, as concerned brothers and sisters, would strive to also wish to do the same. As you can well imagine, though, that admonition is perhaps highlighted by what the Lord said in Matthew, the 18th chapter. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus on that occasion identified these as points of consideration. He said, that if there is that difficulty, that brother that errs, that one for which there is something that is a, that is a division point, you go to that person. If he will hear you, you've gained thy brother. If not, take a couple of witnesses with you. Again, if, you, if he will hear you, you've gained your brother. If not, you bring it to the church. At that point, might we notice, it becomes an issue with which the church must deal at some point. If again, the brother will not respond, if the person will not hear that which has been taught, if the admonition has not been received appropriately. As we give thought to what the Lord said on that occasion, doesn't it then bring us to appreciate that scene in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? As I mentioned earlier, let's revisit that one because it is the most clear-cut case in the New Testament we have on the direct subject of this point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we will remember that this congregation had more than one problem or issue, but one of them that Paul mentioned was in fact this one. It is reported, verse number 1, commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. The church in Corinth, we notice Paul says there's fornication in the number. And what's more, this fornication is known. It wasn't hidden beneath the cover of darkness. It was something of which they had knowledge. However, he sadly notes that it involved a man with his stepmother, and we notice in verse number 2, it says the congregation had not responded in the way that was appropriate. He says in verse 2 that they were puffed up. 
instead of mourning and being heartbroken over the state of affairs, they rather, it seems, in an element of pride, tolerated it, went along with it, maybe even had a degree of encouragement with regard to it. At the very least, he says, that that one who was guilty in verse 2 had not been taken away from them the way that he ought to have been. He should have been disfellowshipped by this time. There should have been a withdrawal so that he would understand the sin of his way, but the church had not done that. And so in verse 3, For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This gentleman, guilty of fornication and continuing to live in that way, Paul said, brethren, fellowship, disfellowship, so that though now this hopefully will lead to a stopping of this fleshly sin, and in the day of finality he might be saved. That's the goal of the disfellowship. It isn't to get even with him. It isn't to, in fact, give him a bad name. His soul is at stake. His eternity is in jeopardy at this point. He has chosen to act in a way, by way of fornication, and we know that fornicators won't enter heaven. In verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There was to be a hunger and desire for sincerity and for truth, so that the purity of the church could be made plain, and hopefully again this one could be saved that he would come to realize the need for change in his life. Verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And we have Paul's final statement that this individual had chosen to live in the catalog of wickedness and the church was commanded, put that one away. As you and I notice and ask about the scene of events as they took place, we might well wonder, did the church do what Paul commanded? Did the church exhibit a matter of withdrawing fellowship from this one? And if they did, what happened? If you'd like to read the second chapter of Second Corinthians, you'll find what happened. The church did, in fact, what Paul commanded, they did strive to admonish, to withdraw fellowship, to exhort and encourage and urge this one to change. And in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, we find that he did.
In fact, it seems Paul had to make sure to tell the church, now that this brother has repented, now that he has come back, you need to receive him like a brother. That sin has been forgotten and forgiven by the God of heaven, and you need to treat him because what you hoped would happen has happened. It did have that lovely effect of leading that one back to the pathways of rightness. As you can see, some of the comments about this chapter, this one living in fornication, yet strove to maintain fellowship with the church, and Paul rebuked the congregation because they hadn't withdrawn fellowship from him. He hadn't repented to that point, and it appeared he wasn't going to unless the church made that final statement to where he knew exactly where he stood. As you can see also, as you look at other verses involved in this, the last thing on that slide, a congregation that is blessed with elders, it would certainly would be expected that they would take the lead and in fact direct that congregation toward the carrying out of this. But in the final analysis, it is the entire congregation that's involved in the disfellowship. Did you notice Paul here didn't just say it's the elders. It's the whole church at Corinth was to be involved in the disfellowship that way that person would hopefully understand the enormity and the magnitude of exactly where he stood. One of those last verses in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 2 and 9 point us to the wholeness of the congregation to the point where in verse number 11 it even says that this person who had been disfellowshipped know not with such an one even to eat they would then understand that the regular social organization of matters would have changed. That others do not take the pleasure and liberty to even desire to be with them, at least in that regard, any longer. For all those reasons, we notice again how thankful we can be. Apparently that one did react and respond in penitence, in repentance, in coming back to a right relationship with God, because again, 2 Corinthians 2 reminds us of that fact. The issues of withdrawing fellowship as we've studied them in this lesson today point us to these summary thoughts. Christian fellowship is a matter of remarkable privilege and honor. It ought never to be taken lightly. It ought never to, in fact, be run roughshod over as if it's trivial or unimportant. But rather, as we've also learned, that discipline for those who walk disorderly would be an expected thing and the Scriptures command it. For that reason, we each should strive to walk orderly before God so that we not only can encourage the elders in their effort, but we can lead many precious souls to the Christ. But when one chooses to walk disorderly, running roughshod over the statements of Scripture, showing a hard, cold, and calloused heart with regard to what God has taught, if that person won't repent, if that individual simply is unresponsive to the truth despite whatever their current life situation would be, then the church eventually must step in. And it must eventually exhibit a matter of withdrawing fellowship, hopefully, that they might learn and that they might change. As we give thought to that this morning, what about each of us examining ourselves whether we be in the faith? In the words of 2 Corinthians 13:5, are we walking as we ought to? Tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the other days of the week do others see in us the life of Christ. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Today, if there would be one or more in the audience that might have a need to respond in a public way to the invitation of the gospel, why not let that be known? Why not come forward? Why not, in fact, make things right between you and your God? If we could be of assistance and help in that way, whether one is an alien sinner and have never yet been baptized, that could be accomplished in but a few moments. But if you are a brother or sister who once has been so faithful but no longer is, why not come back and enjoy a fellowship again with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ? And if we could be of assistance in praying for you in your rededication, would you not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?